Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 27 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm honored to have planetary scientist Bruce Joukowsky, the principal investigator on NASA's Mars MAVEN mission and the science team member of the UAE's Hope Mars Probe, which is currently en route to Mars orbit as my featured guest. A professor in the lab for atmospheric and space physics and the Department of Geological Sciences at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and an associate director for science at LASP, Joukowsky received his Ph.D. in planetary science and geophysics from Caltech in 1982. For more than a decade, he headed the University of Colorado's team within NASA's Astrobiology Institute, and he is author of the 1999 book The Search for Life on Other Planets and the 2006 book Science, Society, and the Search for Life in the Universe. But today... The topic of discussion is a giant leap that the Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution, or MAVEN, spacecraft via the data it has taken from Mars orbit over the last six years. Above all, MAVEN has given planetary scientists a window onto how and why Mars lost its atmosphere and much of its water so quickly. Joukowsky joins us from Winter Park, Colorado. Bruce, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks, Bruce. It's a real pleasure to be here today. So, uh, before we get into the MAVEN mission results and the details of all the missions that are about to follow, let me start with a broad brush question. (laughs) What puzzles you most about Mars as a whole? Uh, Puzzles isn't the right word, but uh, the right question might be, what is exciting or interesting about Mars? And I'll tell you, I've been working on Mars for over 40 years now. And I think it's getting very clear that the most interesting question is, is there life there today? Was there ever life there? And if there was, why? What is it about Mars that would have allowed life to exist? And if we don't find it, what is it about Mars that would have kept life from existing? As I wrote in Forbes, Mars's orbit around the sun places it just outside the outer edge of our solar system's habitable zone. So to date, the leading theory for how it could have had climate conditions from some 4.3 billion to 3.5 billion years ago is based on the fact that it countered our own early faint sun by making good use of greenhouse gases. So in other words, it was able to kind of heat itself up by using greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and water vapor. And you told me uh, previously that Mars did have a magnetic field early in its history, at least it's thought to have had a magnetic field early in its history, but that the magnetic field turned off around 4 billion years ago. Is this still the paradigm? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in what you said, so let me take a a crack at it here. Okay. The first thing is, what's the evidence that Mars had liquid water at the surface? It is one and a half times farther away from the sun than the Earth is, And it has a very thin atmosphere, so it's much colder. The average temperature at the surface today is about minus 50 degrees C. Despite that, we see geological evidence that really points pretty strongly to uh, liquid water having been present early in history. As you said, maybe three and a half to four billion years ago, we see features that were carved by liquid water that look like uh, branching river tributary systems, runoff of liquid water, And with the rovers in the last uh, couple of decades, we've seen, and with the orbiters, we've seen minerals that can only form in the presence of liquid water, and these appear to uh, to be present only on the older surfaces. They aren't present on the younger surfaces. So we see evidence that Mars had liquid water that was more stable or more abundant at the surface early in its history, and then that stopped. Something changed the climate. The, the problems are twofold, as you suggested. The first is, how do we get the planet warm enough to allow liquid water, especially given the fact that the sun was 
30% dimmer early in history. The explanation probably is the presence of greenhouse gases that would trap the heat from the sun, keep it from radiating back to space, and warm the planet. Uh, CO2 is the most plausible greenhouse gas, but there are problems with that. And frankly, we don't understand what really drove the early climate. That's one of the the major puzzles coming back now to your uh, question. The, the second issue is how do we get rid of that greenhouse gas? Because as the sun was heating up, Mars was cooling down. And if it was a greenhouse gas that created a warmer planet, you have to get rid of it. The leading explanation today, and we can talk about this, is that the sun and the solar wind stripped the gas away from the planet early in history when the solar wind was more intense and when the solar ultraviolet light was more intense. And uh, that was would have been very effective at removing the gas. The solar wind, at least, would have been effective once you got rid of the magnetic field. So when the magnetic field shut off, maybe four billion years ago, that allowed the turn on of stripping by the solar wind. So in other words, early Mars was very effective at using the greenhouse gases within its atmosphere to kind of warm itself in a way that would not have been expected a decade ago, maybe. Well, it, it gets re- this is where it gets really complicated because CO2 is the best greenhouse gas, but the people that do climate modeling can't get temperatures warm enough for liquid water with only CO2. So they need to start adding other gases in like hydrogen gas or sulfur dioxide but they still require a lot of CO2 as the starting point. As I wrote in Forbes, the turnoff of the magnetic field allowed for the uh, turn on of the atmospheric stripping by the solar wind. But you told me that the ability of the solar wind to remove atmosphere declined rapidly early in the planet's history. You said that understanding hydrogen loss is key to sorting out the history of water on Mars. Again, there's a lot to unpack there. One of the... the bizarre things I'll say about looking at the history of Mars is everything was happening at once. Not everything, but a lot was happening in the period between four and three and a half billion years ago. The number of impacts onto the planet was declining. The climate was changing. The magnetic field was turning off, uh, allowing the solar wind to uh, strip away gas. And the solar ultraviolet and the intensity of the solar wind were declining. So if any one of them had been just a little bit different, it would have changed the processes that occurred. In some sense, then, it's coincidence or dumb luck that the magnetic field turned off quickly enough to allow the solar wind to strip away the gas. We're talking here about the the CO2 as a greenhouse gas. You asked about hydrogen in particular, And that's where it gets more interesting because the hydrogen that we can see escaping from the planet today comes from water. Water is broken up by uh, sunlight and the hydrogen and the oxygen can escape separately. So if we want to look at the history of water, we really need to look at the history of the escape of hydrogen or the behavior of hydrogen. And so uh, has this been the overarching result from the MAVEN mission that that Mars lost half its atmosphere over a very short period of time? I'll say yes. Uh, MAVEN was designed to look specifically at the upper atmosphere and to understand the processes going on today. The upper atmosphere is the conduit, if you will, through which atmospheric gas has to travel to get from the lower atmosphere to space. And by understanding the processes, how the sun affects the upper atmosphere, how the solar wind can strip away gas today, we can learn about how gas is lost through time. When we do this, we see CO2 being lost today, the carbon and the oxygen. The oxygen also comes from water, and we see hydrogen being lost today. When we extrapolate back through time, what we find is that The majority of CO2 must have been lost to space, and the majority of water must have been lost to space. So this is a major change from 20 or 30 years ago 
where people were looking for where did the gas go into the planet? Where did the water go into the planet? We're now trying to understand how did it all get stripped away and exactly how much has been stripped away and how did that change the climate? And the, the water was probably lost by photo dissociation of the hydrogen and the oxygen. That's right. And then the hydrogen is light enough that it can escape th through a process called thermal escape. It just, uh, think of it as evaporating from the planet. The molecules are moving fast enough and they're light enough. They can just get away. The oxygen, though, is too heavy to do that, but it can get stripped away by the solar wind. So it's the combination of processes that results in loss of hydrogen, loss of oxygen, and together, effectively, loss of water. And can you explain, uh, it, let's say you, there's water in the upper atmosphere. How is that water, the H2O, uh, photodissociated? The ultraviolet light, actually extreme ultraviolet light, very short wavelength light from the sun, hits an H2O molecule and gets absorbed by it. And it energizes it enough that the hydrogen and oxygen just get ripped apart. If, if, I have, if I pull a piece of candy, chocolate candy, out of the box and it's stuck to a second piece, I've got to try to pull them apart. If I throw it on the floor, they'll break apart. If I shoot a BB at it, it'll break it apart. Unfortunately, with the candy, I can't break it apart with sunlight. But if it's a molecule, sunlight can break it apart as well. So please tell us how Maven took its data. And it's still operational, amazingly, after six years. I mean, it's been on station since uh, 2014, if I'm correct. Yes, we just passed uh, six years in our science mission a little over seven years in space. It takes 10 months to get there. MAVEN works with a combination of what's called remote sensing and in-situ measurements. The remote sensing, we look at uh, light that is emitted by the atmosphere, and we measure the properties of it and infer what's going on in the atmosphere. The in-situ measurements, we have detectors that can tell us what it is that we're traveling through. The electrons, the ions, the neutral gas. Uh, we also, also measure the magnetic field and the incoming energy from the sun. We put MAVEN into an elliptical orbit so that these in situ measurements can measure at a lot of different altitudes. When MAVEN is closest to the planet, it could get down to about 150 kilometers above the surface. And when it was farthest from the planet, it would get to above 6,000 kilometers above the surface. So that distance range spans all the interesting things going on from the upstream solar wind where it hasn't hit the planet yet all the way to what I'll call the top of the lower atmosphere where the atmosphere is well mixed. By looking at all these things in, in the profiles with altitude and measuring all these different things at once, we're able to infer not only what the current structure and composition of the ap upper atmosphere is, but what the processes that control it were and how much gas is escaping to space today. What we wanted to do was to understand how much gas is being lost and what processes control it. And that way we can extrapolate back in time and get an integrated loss throughout history. And to be clear, the uh, Mars's atmosphere is even less than 1% of that of Earth. At, at the surface, it's a little bit more than half a percent. So yes, less than 1%. Remember, though, where, where MAVEN is orbiting, it's at the upper atmosphere and the density is much lower. Good we gosh. measure the density uh, of the atmosphere through which MAVEN is passing in units of kilograms per cubic kilometer. It's very low density. So at, at the lowest altitude in the orbit, it might be 0 0.05 kilograms per cubic kilometer. That's really low. So it has a very uh, tenuous atmosphere, almost like a, an exosphere. I mean, well, it is, it is an exosphere because that's the part of the, of the top of the atmosphere we're passing through. So we're trying to understand what happens in the exosphere, which is the region from which gas actually escapes to space. 
But if I'm not incorrect, that our own moon has an, uh, what we call an exosphere. And I thought an exosphere just meant that it's such a, a tiny bit of, of uh, atmosphere that it doesn't even qualify as an atmosphere. Uh, one I... man's atmosphere is another person's noise. <laughs> uh, the, the exosphere has a formal definition that basically is if you took a molecule and shot it upward, it would escape before it hit anything. So the atoms or the molecules are on ballistic trajectories with very few collisions. The moon has an exosphere because the, uh, the gas is so tenuous that the molecules are on ballistic trajectories and some will escape and others will just bounce from one place on the surface to another, never hitting anything. And, but what's amazing, you know, just for the, for the casual observer, that Mars has uh, such a, a tenuous atmosphere that it has dust storms. I mean, how can it have dust storms, global dust storms, which do <laughs> cause ha wreak havoc on the solar panels of these uh, spacecraft it, with such a, a minute atmosphere? I mean, that's pretty hard to wrap your head around. Yes. Yes and no. Uh uh, the atmosphere is extremely tenuous, but it does have global dust storms where the dust gets so thick you can't see the sky. You can't see out of it from space. You can't see down to the surface. But when you look at the size of the dust, and here's where it really begins to boggle my mind, it's an extremely fine-grained dust. It's much finer than if you went down to Phoenix and experienced one of their dust storms. The dust is half a micron in size. That's the same size as the particles in cigarette smoke. Mm. So it's extremely fine-grained dust, and it doesn't take much wind to lift it up. A maven should manage to continue operations until the middle or until the late uh, 2020s. You mentioned that one reason that NASA is on board with maven becoming an extended mission is that it needs a spacecraft as an on-orbit relay satellite for its Mars surface landers and rovers in order to relay data back to Earth. Uh, is that correct? That, that's right, Bruce. Right now we have, uh, I, I, I can't remember the number. I'm, ha I'm going to have to list the spacecraft on the surface. We have the Curiosity rover, the InSight lander, and Mars 2020 rover is on its way. And the Chinese have a rover that's on its way to Mars. So with all of those, we need to get the data back. The, the rovers and the landers could carry big antennas to send the data back, but they're very heavy. Instead, they relay the data to an orbiter, and the orbiter sends it back. Uh, right now, uh, the orbiters that are operational and sending data back, MAVEN is one of them, the Mars Odyssey spacecraft, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and the European Trace Gas Orbiter. So that's four orbiters sending data back. And the two uh, surface vehicles right now are each doing three to four relays per day because they have so much data to send back. Mm. Now, now, those... The, the NASA orbiters are starting to get old. Mars Odyssey was launched in 2001. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter in 2005. MAVEN, as we said, has been in orbit for more than six years. Uh, they're getting old, and to be honest, we could lose one at any time. Components get old, and something will fail, or somebody makes a mistake. We don't want to lose the orbiters, MAVEN is uh, ramping up its relay activity. Uh, this year, we've been doing about one relay pass per day. When Mars 2020 gets there, we're going to ramp it up to about three a day. So they want to keep us alive as long as possible. Right now, we have fuel that will last until 2030 or later. So we hope we can keep the mission going that long. As I said, though, things can fail at any time, knock on wood here. Is the science that you're uh, continuing to do with MAVEN, is it all gravy at this point, or are you really doing science that, uh, that necessitates another decade? 
We're, we're doing fundamental science. I'm glad you asked that question because it's a really important one. When we first proposed MAVEN, we proposed to do a one Earth year science mission. We thought mm. that we would get a lot of data in one year that would allow us to answer some of the questions we posed. Of course, we discovered the system is much more complicated than we had anticipated. For example, uh, we're discovering that every Mars year is not the same as every other Mars year. Things are different in the lower atmosphere and that affects the upper atmosphere. Perhaps more significantly, we've seen that things vary throughout the solar cycle. There's an 11 year cycle of how the sun behaves, not in the visible, it's very stable there, but in the ultraviolet and in the solar wind. And we need to see how it behaves at all the different phases to really understand what's going on. So MAVEN arrived at Mars just after a maximum in the solar cycle. At the beginning of this year, we passed the minimum, and the sun has started to get more active. The solar maximum is going to be somewhere in the 2025 time frame. If we can get a full solar cycle of measurements, that would be just spectacular. Let's talk about the uh, United Arab Emirates HOPE mission, which you are a member of the science team and have been an advisor to this uh, mission. Uh, and it will arrive at Mars and be inserted into an elliptical 55-hour orbit within the first three months of, of next year, 2021. It will undertake a nominal two-year science mission, and it will investigate how the lower and upper levels of the Martian atmosphere are connected. And as you mentioned to me previously, MAVEN is focusing on Mars's upper atmosphere, while HOPE will specifically measure lower atmospheric properties. Can you talk about the synergy between these two missions, MAVEN and HOPE? You've hit on the key issues. MAVEN is focused on the upper atmosphere. What we've seen is that there's an important component that we're missing, which is the coupling between the lower atmosphere and the upper atmosphere. How uh, gas and dust and water exchange between them, how energy gets moved from the lower atmosphere to the upper atmosphere, and that's what the HOPE mission is going to focus on. It's going to be making simultaneous measurements of the temperature, the dust, the water, the clouds in the lower atmosphere, and what it does to the upper atmosphere. So we'll get a direct sense of how these processes of coupling behave. We expect that that's going to be a pretty significant aspect of understanding the whole atmosphere from bottom to top. So uh, you told me also in one of my Forbes articles that, uh, that there was a long list of Mars lessons learned that uh, you would share with the UAE science team. Can you highlight a few of these lessons learned? Because I don't think the general public understands just how difficult these missions are. Well, you're talking about the lessons learned in uh, developing a mission, in building the spacecraft, in operating it. It takes maybe five or six years from concept to launch, just because these are complex. People spend their entire careers building components or building or operating spacecraft, and, and it's an exciting way to spend one's time. But there's a lot that has to be done. The thing that has surprised me the most, perhaps, and, and maybe I shouldn't admit this, is the degree to which you have to couple together the science, the engineering, and the budget. Uh, they have to all mesh. You, you need a high-priority science goal. You need to design a system that includes the spacecraft and the science instruments that can answer the questions you've posed, and you need to do it within your budget. That's the hard part, is doing all three of those at once. It's easy to send a a spacecraft uh, if you have unlimited money, but nobody does. You have to design it in a way that brings all of these to the same level at the same time. But having a budget, I mean, doesn't that also kind of make you more focused and more disciplined? You know, you say, well, we only have this amount of money. We got we to gotta be more innovative than maybe 
we would would have been if we had an unlimited budget. You you said the right words at the beginning of that sentence, and that is being more focused. Having a limited budget forces you to really not try to put everything you want to do on the spacecraft. We could have flown another three to four instruments uh, on MAVEN without blinking an eye, but we didn't have the budget to do it. So we had to think about what were the most important measurements we needed and what was the cost. When we had problems on cost, we actually had to eliminate instruments. Uh, Originally, we had uh, an instrument that we were going to fly and we didn't have the budget for it, so we had to drop it. We also were going to fly two copies of one instrument because we thought it was so important and we wanted to make sure we'd have the data. But again, when we got into budget problems, uh, we couldn't afford that, so we had to drop it and fly only one. Fortunately, it's worked wonderfully. And fortunately, the budget problems were early and we didn't have some of the late problems that can crop up. So we ended up actually underrunning our budget. And what is the, the overall cost for the for Maven? The, the amount of money that NASA had allocated for it was about $680 million. Uh, that includes the development of the spacecraft, the science instruments, the uh, assembly and test of all the components, the launch vehicle, and the operations and science analysis for that primary mission of one Earth year. That's how much was allocated. We came in under that by almost $100 million. Good gosh. Uh, so it was, a real, it was a real success story. Mm. And, and it, it's a, it keeps on ticking. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, it's yeah. like the Energizer Bunny, this, this maven. We can take some credit for coming in under budget, but some of it is we didn't have any major problems during development. Uh, nobody dropped an instrument. Uh, and that does happen, unfortunately. Uh, there weren't uh, technology problems that needed to be overcome. Now, some of that was intentional. We specifically designed it to not require any new technology because if you have to develop technology, that's where you can get into trouble when it doesn't go smoothly. Right. So we wanted to use components that had flown before and we knew how to deal with them. How to make them. So Hope is expected to send back more than a thousand gigabytes of data that will be cataloged and analyzed in the UAE and then shared with U.S. partner institutions and the global Mars science community. They're going to be on orbit by 2021. When do you expect uh, the data analysis from Hope to begin in earnest? The spacecraft arrives in early February and will go into orbit. Once it's in orbit, there's a lot that has to be done to commission the spacecraft. Uh, first, we have to get it in from the, the insertion orbit into the science orbit because they're not the same. We have to test all the components, make sure that they're working. Uh, we have to do things like calibrate the instruments on orbit before we can use them. All of that is going to take about two to three months. So it'll be into late spring uh, or early summer before we begin to get the science data on a regular basis. As soon as we can, we're going to release the data to the public, but that'll take a few months to make sure it's well calibrated and, and all the problems have been removed from it. The, the project manager in the UAE, Omran Sharaf, has publicly said that the cost was around $200 million, so significantly cheaper uh-huh. than MAVEN. But that it was designed to be that way. It's a smaller spacecraft. It has fewer instruments, uh, so it's going to come out cheaper. And what about the, 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 Mar, uh, the Chinese Mars mission that's en route? I admittedly don't know too much about it. I can tell you just a little because I don't know as much about it either. Uh, it ha- they've sent two <laughs> spacecraft, an okay. orbiter and a lander, uh, a rover to the surface. Uh, the orbiter is going to make measurements of the surface and the atmosphere and the upper atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And the rover is going to analyze the composition of the surface materials. What about the uh, NASA's Perseverance uh, ro- uh, 2020 rover? 
how will that aid in your own research? First, I think that, that the Perseverance rover is incredibly exciting, not just for the measurements that it's going to make while it's there, but also because it's going to collect samples to bring back to the Earth. And that's going to allow us to address one of these fundamental questions about Mars, whether there's ever been life there. The general expectation is that uh, it's very hard to detect life today, but we can go to some place where there might have been life in the past, collect a sample of rocks that might retain some chemical or mineralogical remnant of that life and bring it back to the Earth to study. And that's what Perseverance is going to do. It's going to land in Jezero Crater, which is a region that has had flowing water and a standing lake inside it. And it's going to collect the samples that we'll eventually bring back to Earth. Some people kind of just wonder, you know, why do we keep going uh, back to Mars? You know, we do get a lot of uh, conflicting, you know, science papers. Every month there's some new science paper espousing this and that and the other about whether Mars had life, but not just life, whether it had uh, running water and et cetera, et cetera. First of all, I think you've got it exactly right. Uh, it's a running joke within the Mars science community about how many times somebody has discovered water on Mars. <laughs> and yeah. the, the, the reason is not that we're discovering water, but we keep discovering new things about it. From, from Mariner 9 in 1971 and from Viking in 1976, we learned a lot about water flowing over the surface. From the Spirit and Opportunity rovers in the 1990s, we learned about the minerals that are present at the surface and how they relate to the geology and tell us about water on the surface. From the uh, Curiosity rover, we learned more about the chemistry that tells us that where it landed, which was an ancient lake bed inside an impact crater, uh, it would have been a habitable environment. Uh, not that life was necessarily there, but life could have lived there if it was there. Uh, it, was, it was an environment conducive to life. The Perseverance rover is going to collect samples to bring back to Earth. So all of these things are telling us about different aspects of the surface composition, of the uh, availability of water, of the history of water. And they all play into what we really want to know about how it all fits together. The MAVEN orbiter is learning about the history of the atmosphere and climate. Uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has mapped out water-related surface minerals. Each spacecraft is going to Mars with a completely different payload. Each time it's as if we're discovering the planet for the first time because we're measuring things we've never measured before. Uh, the fact is that Mars is a complex planet. You can't learn everything you want from a single spacecraft mission. Imagine trying to learn about uh, everything about the Earth from one or two or even 10 or 20 spacecraft missions where maybe you land in one or two places on the surface but don't get to explore it globally. It's a real tough problem. So uh, a paper published in Nature Geoscience this past summer notes that a large number of the valley networks scarring the surface of Mars were carved by water melting beneath glacial ice, not by free-flowing rivers as previously thought. The findings effectively threw cold water on the dominant warm and wet ancient Mars hypothesis, which postulated that rivers, rainfall, and oceans once existed on the red planet. You have to be careful about what the analysis is and what the conclusions are. What, what they demonstrated was that you can get liquid water beneath a surface covering of ice. That doesn't mean that that's what happened. We're trying to understand what happened. Uh, I would say going back to the Viking mission, people have been having that debate. Does the water represent, the, do the, the valley networks that look like they were carved by water on the ancient surface, do they represent valleys carved by water runoff that was runoff from precipitation? Do they represent 
water that has percolated from beneath the surface and pulled material away in a process called sapping? Or could it be water that has flowed underneath an ice cover, a glacial cover, and carved the channels? I don't think the the uh, I don't think we have an answer yet. The jury is still out, and each piece of analysis gives us just a little bit more data to help us understand the system. Okay, and then this week, a paper published in the journal Science Advances notes that after Mars lost its atmosphere and began cooling down, water would have moved into the deep subsurface, perhaps several miles deep. Their geothermal heat enabled liquid water and potentially microbial life, says this uh, Rutgers-led study. What are your thoughts about this idea? Again, we have to be careful here about what they actually did and what they're taking a guess at, what they're speculating on. That paper looked at the heat flow out of the interior early in Martian history. The interior of Mars is hotter than the surface. Heat flows from hot to cold, and it does so by creating a temperature gradient. So as you dig down into the subsurface, it gets warmer. You see that on Earth if you go down into deep mines where every kilometer down that you go, the temperature gets 20 degrees Fahrenheit warmer. Uh, It's a very significant warming. What they demonstrated was that on early Mars, you wouldn't have to go too deep before you got to a place where temperatures would allow liquid water to be stable, where ice would melt. That doesn't tell us that the ground was filled with ice or, or with water, but it does tell us that water from the surface could have percolated into the subsurface as the planet cooled off. If there ever had been any life at the surface, it may have followed into the subsurface. So the observation is one of heat flow, inferring the heat flow, and the speculation is what that might have meant for possible life. So uh, you told me uh, that there's solid evidence for liquid water lakes on Mars, that Mars had liquid water lakes, let's be clear about that, but that the jury is still out on whether Mars ever had oceans. Absolutely. By the way, I like that phrase, there's solid evidence for liquid water. That That's a nice turn of a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> well, that you actually hit. That was a, that was one of your quotes, actually, if I remember correctly. Solid evidence well, for liquid water. There you go. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm not going to take credit for it. You're the one who said it today. Uh, now, with all that, I forgot the question. <laughs> so, in other words, you you said there were solid evidence that the that ancient Mars likely had lakes, but as far as whether it had had oceans you're not you're not certain that's right again there there's evidence that says there might have been oceans there's evidence that says there might not have been and the jury is still out what we do know though is that there were large amounts of water released from the subsurface in catastrophic floods we see the large what are called outflow channels from which the water debauched and it would have flowed into the northern lowlands it's hard to imagine it wouldn't have pooled up and created a very large lake or a small ocean, but we don't have the evidence to really tell us how much water was there, how much was liquid at one time, and whether it's an ocean the way we think of it here on Earth. And where, uh, if, if, if Mars did have water, uh, an ocean at one point, where, do you, where was it located, do you think? In the Northern Hemisphere? Yes. Uh, Mars is divided up into sort of two hemispheres. The southern hemisphere is higher topographically. Uh It's also older. The northern hemisphere is lower topographically, so we call it the northern lowlands versus the southern highlands. And it's younger. It's been resurfaced with volcanism, by volcanism. And if there was an ocean, it would have flowed to the lowest point, which would have been the northern lowlands. So it's been estimated that Mars has lost, likely lost enough water to cover the planet's surface, surface with an ocean tens to hundreds of meters deep, and that H2O loss rates must have been even higher in the past than, than they are today. That's absolutely right. If we start with where do we see water today, uh, the, most, the, the first place you can identify water is in the atmosphere, 
but there's not much there. If you condensed it all out of the atmosphere into a giant ice cube, it would be about a kilometer across. That sounds pretty big, but it's really not much water for a planet. Mm -hmm. The second place is the North Polar water ice cap. And uh, that has something like a million times more water than is vapor in the atmosphere. If you spread that water globally, it would be a global layer about 20 to 30 meters deep. In addition, uh, just within the last few years, they've discovered mid-latitude deposits of ground ice that are buried under a surface covering of dirt. And these may have another five or 10 meters of water, again, if you could spread it globally. So, so that's the amount of water we see today. But if you look at the channels and the flood channels, they would have required much more water than that to carve them. So one of the questions has been, where did the rest of the water go? If there ever were oceans, the water could have percolated into the subsurface and frozen. It could be there today. We see minerals that require liquid water to form, and they've incorporated the water into their mineral structure. So we know that there's water there. But we see direct evidence that water is being lost to space. The hydrogen and the oxygen from the water are escaping to space. And when we look at how much water has been lost to space, uh, that appears to have been a pretty significant fraction of the total water. Is there any evidence today that Mars has liquid water? That's the $64,000 question. There are two places, there are three places that I can point to where the answer might be yes. The first is uh, the Mars Global Surveyor spacecraft discovered relatively small and, and young gullies, uh, places that look like water might have been percolating out of the subsurface and flowing downhill and carving gullies. It's not certain that those were carved by liquid water. They could be dry, formed from dry avalanches or from something else that we don't understand. So that's the first possibility. The second possibility, if you remember the Phoenix lander that landed a decade and a half ago, they saw little droplets uh, that looked like liquid water that splattered up from the ground onto the legs of the spacecraft. From that data, from, from, from measurements of the dirt and from global measurements of the dirt elsewhere, we've determined that there are minerals called perchlorates. Perchlorates are a type of mineral that can suck water vapor out of the atmosphere and dissolve in it. So there could be tiny amounts of liquid water distributed globally maybe five or 10 centimeters below the surface. Not enough that you could scoop it up and drink it, but thin films of liquid water on the dirt. That's the second place. The third is based on recent radar measurements from the uh, Mars Express spacecraft and from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft that suggests that there might be a very high radar reflectivity layer about a kilometer down. To get the high radar reflectivity that they see, it would require liquid water because liquid water reflects radar very effectively. They've found uh, several deposits of this material near the North Polar region. And it could be, uh, people are referring to it as buried lakes, but it may be buried groundwater a kilometer down. That's the third possibility. And where exactly would that buried groundwater be? Just all over, globally? No, it, they've seen it in the northern hemisphere. In the northern hemisphere, okay. Yeah, uh, near near the polar region, and, and just a couple of small deposits of it. Uh, we don't know if it would be globally distributed or if it is, at what depth it would be. This is a case where you have to be very careful about what you're measuring and not extrapolate too far beyond the measurements. There's not even complete agreement yet that it's liquid water causing these radar reflective regions, but that's the best, that's the leading hypothesis today. Okay. So what about the organics on Mars uh, thus far? Is there any evidence that the methane that has been observed 
a couple of times, is a biologic in origin or is it abiotic? Well, let's talk about two different aspects of organics. And the first is the methane. Methane has been observed telescopically from Earth and also from the Curiosity rover. I've looked a lot at those data because they've been controversial. I'm convinced that it's a real detection. However, the Trace Gas Orbiter, which is the European mission that's been operating in the last couple of years, has better instruments and has not detected any methane. One possibility is the methane is very low to the surface and doesn't get to the higher altitudes that the trace gas orbiter would be able to detect it. But I would say we don't understand methane. Assuming the methane is real, one possibility is that it was produced biologically. There are organisms that, as a byproduct of metabolism, give off methane. On Earth, uh, termites do, cows do. I'm not suggesting there are cows on Mars, <laughs> but there might, be, there might be microbes that give off methane. The second possibility, though, is it could be geological. Methane is released on Earth from volcanoes. Uh, it's a, one of the gases that is part of volcanism. We need to know more about what other gases are present in order to understand whether it's geological or biological. And we don't have that information yet. The, uh, of the amounts that have been detected by Perseverance and even from the ground, uh, are they significant enough that they would dissipate? So in other words, would the detections by Curiosity rover, uh, would they be small enough that, you know, basically they would dissipate over, over a short period of time? So how, how recent would, the, would this methane have had to have been produced? People are struggling to understand methane. One of the, the important aspects is, of it is that sunlight will break it apart. So it has a finite lifetime in the Mars atmosphere, something like a couple of hundred years. Uh -huh. So any methane in the, that's detected today would have to have been released within the past few hundred years. But it could still be geological, biological, or brought in by meteorites. Okay. Uh, so we just don't know enough yet to sort it out. So the, methane is the first possible organic that has been detected. The second was detected from the Curiosity rover, and it consists of long-chain hydrocarbon organic molecules. This is the first clear detection of complex organic molecules on Mars, and it's significant in that regard. Unfortunately, we don't have enough data to tell us whether it's geological or biological or was produced by incoming brought in by incoming meteorites. So it's an important observation, but it doesn't answer the question about life. Again, we're going to have to bring samples of the surface back to the Earth in order to understand, uh, determine whether there was ever life there. So what are the environmental lessons thus far that Mars have, has given us that we can apply to our characterization of extrasolar planets or even when trying to better understand Earth's own geophysical history? Uh, that's a really good question. And trying to apply our understanding of the planets in our solar system to exoplanets, planets around other stars, is uh, becoming central to astronomy and astrophysics and planetary science. Between Earth, Venus, and Mars, we know a lot now about how planets can... Uh, evolve through time about what processes operate there. And in those three planets, nature has done a wonderful experiment for us by varying the conditions. So we see very different outcomes. You know, they all have different atmospheres, different temperatures, and so on. With Mars, what we're doing is looking at the processes that can strip the atmosphere to space and applying that to exoplanets because those planets uh, are also subject to stripping from the stellar wind and the ultraviolet light from their host star. So we're getting a sense of, what, uh, of how these planets might be habitable and for how long in their history they might have been habitable. And so how has the paradigm for Mars science shifted since Viking? In, in, the, uh, oh in, the, in the 1970s. 
the that's a again that's a really good question the the biggest paradigm has been understanding the role of climate change and habitability uh the biggest paradigm shift we we we've assembled compelling evidence for the history of climate and the role of greenhouse gases in controlling that climate and understanding a little bit about where those greenhouse gases have gone back in the 70s and 80s people were looking for the deposits of carbon bearing minerals because that of course is where all the CO2 went down into the subsurface well we never quite found them but we have determined that the CO2 has been lost to space uh we see a planet for which our understanding of the history of habitability has evolved the understanding today is that mars was certainly habitable by microbes at the surface early in its history and that things have changed and it probably isn't anywhere today except in maybe extremely isolated locations so i think in terms of climate history the coupling between the geology and the climate and the solar energetic input and the history of habitability uh, are the areas where there's been the most uh change in our thought so do you think that uh, mars had life or may still have extant life at this point doesn't matter what i think what i will say is that mars meets all of the requirements we would put on an environment to be able to support life or it did at some time in the past the life could have been at the surface early in history or in the subsurface in more recent epochs and that to me says it's worth going and looking we can go and find out whether there was life there and whatever the answer whether there was or whether there wasn't is going to really help us understand what properties can control the behavior uh 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 the origin and evolution of life so either answer is going to be profound so if microbial life is found on mars or elsewhere in our own solar system what would that mean for the frequency of life in the universe do you think depends on whether that life came from earth originally or not there are ways to transfer life between planets especially in the inner solar system uh impacts can eject rocks to space from mars those rocks can land on earth we have meteorites that have come from mars uh they can be ejected from the earth and land on mars and they can take life with them so the first question if we discover life on mars is does it bear a genetic connection to life on earth or does it represent an independent origin of life and i think that's going to be the the first and most important question to ask so what questions though, aren't aren't we asking that need to be asked about mars oh there are so many you know we're we're asking the the right questions but the details and the answers are so complex that we're going to be asking these same questions for a long time to come right now we can go to mars to understand what processes control the climate and habitability of a planet and how they change through time what processes control the behavior of the atmosphere today what happened in the first billion years of a planet's history because all the planets in our solar system all the terrestrial planets uh suffered some of the same processes in the first billion years and we can study them very effectively at Mars whereas on Earth we've lost that geological record. So there's so much to learn in order to understand how the planet works. Again, you can't learn it all from a single mission. Each mission can tell us about one component of the environmental system, but we need to understand all of them to see how they interact together and how they feed off each other. So how far along uh, would you guesstimate that we are in our understanding of mars as a as a as a planet from its uh, earliest uh, epochs today till today i'm i'm going to quote thomas edison uh although from a different context he said uh we don't know a tenth of a percent about anything 
<laughs> so we we really are just in the very earliest stages of of understanding Mars. Like that's right. You look at the Earth and how much work has gone into understanding the Earth today. Hundreds of years of geological investigation, thousands and thousands and thousands of scientists studying everything from the deep interior to the upper atmosphere. And we've just done a tiny fraction of that at Mars. How do you respond to members of the public uh, who scoff at spending more money on Mars exploration? Well, it really depends on, on our understanding of what we're trying to do. I like to think that understanding our place in the universe is important. We're interested in looking at the other planets in our solar system because we live on a planet and we want to understand how planets work. Each of the planets in our solar system is different. We're interested in asking questions about whether there's life elsewhere because we're life. We want to understand how unique are we? Is there other life out there? Are we special in some way? And only by looking for life elsewhere can we do that? These are deep philosophical questions uh, that people have been asking ever since there were people. And some of them about life in the universe, we have the ability to answer. You know, I look at it as similar to uh, people who write fiction. Fiction is all about exploring the human condition, understanding what it means to be human. And we're doing that by exploring the solar system and the universe around us. Uh, one of my students put it very well a number of years ago and said, by exploring out there, we're learning about who we are here. We're looking for ourselves. So what drew you personally to planetary science? It's cool. I remember being six years old and sitting in front of the TV watching the countdown to launch the first Mercury astronauts. And at that time, uh, space exploration was the exciting, innovative thing. And that just stuck with me. The comments I made about why we're spending money out there, I feel very deeply within me. I think that it is... Uh, very valuable to society to do it. And it's incredible fun to be able to send a spacecraft to another planet and explore it, to be the first person to learn something about Mars or another place in our solar system or the universe. It's just really exciting. So what goes through your head when you look into a clear night sky and you see Mars? Are you humbled by the fact that you can interpret data from a planet that humans have never set foot upon. It just boggles my mind when I look at Mars in the sky to imagine that we can send a spacecraft that's no bigger than a couple of desks to the planet and put instruments on it that can make measurements that tell us something about the behavior of the planet. I'm just absolutely agog that this works, that we can do it, that we can succeed at it, and we can learn about the universe around us. So, Bruce, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media, via email, if they want to comment or learn more? I think there are so many places out there to learn about Mars, uh, starting with Wikipedia. I'll tell you the truth. The place I get most of my information about Mars today is from Apple News, because every day there's five new articles somewhere that are brought together in that one resource uh, about new and exciting things going on about Mars. Uh, there's no lack of places to get information. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Bruce Joukowsky, thanks uh, so much for helping us all to get a better handle on the history of the Red Planet. Thank you, Bruce Dormany. Uh, it's nice to have the two Bruces chat, and it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies.
music provided by RFM.